Good morning. This is the last in the series of messages that we've created called Let's Break the Rules. And it's about these man-made rules that hinder our relationship with God and with people. Dan, throughout the series, we've received a daily flow of feedback from friends and family, including your family and mine. This morning, I thought it'd be worthwhile to hear from a friend whose story illustrates what we've been learning here. So I would like to introduce Sarah. Uh, I know her and her family. I've known her and her husband for a number of years. And um, Sarah has been watching the series and uh, we just had a conversation about how the series is impacting her and what she's learning. Here's what she just shared with us. I can sure relate to your story and those rules of don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, don't think, and don't choose, and don't change were also a part of my life growing up. Um, my family would attend an annual conference and uh, I remember going going there and a lot of the topics of, that were taught were on how to die to yourself and um, even to the extreme of, of um, you know submission to authority without thinking and I just remember those rides home from these conferences and just feeling um, somehow satisfied in that refilling of realizing how bad I was and how, um, you know, myself, as you said last week, Dan, about that dead horse thinking. And I actually remember them using an analogy very similar to that and how our flesh just has to die. And so a lot of those teachings kind of primed me for joining a cult-like organization and I remember when I left this organization feeling like I just remember the frightening realization that I actually didn't know who I was and it scared me, but I rather than facing that, that question, I thought, Oh no, like I just need to put that to death. It's another one of those things that needs to be put to death. And it got me onto a treadmill of doing more, trying to do better. But yet in the end, I just, I burned out. It was so profound for me. And it was really life-changing to realize that God was willing to meet me in the place of, of brokenness after I had tried so many things for God mm. that he was truly pursuing a relationship with him. Mm. And yeah, your rules. and just your story, Dan, has been very encouraging and inspiring to listen to. And just even the realization of my own journey, it's been, it's been really encouraging. Thank you so much for sharing, Dan. Well, thank you for sharing what you've shared. If I could just ask you a follow-up question. So compare your life the way it used to be to your life today, living in the grace of Jesus. Can you compare those two lifestyles? Oh, I just remember such fear before, um, fear that was crippling and just this immense, it was this immense weight of having to measure up to something I could never attain to. But the realization that that was not what God was looking for from me mm. and just being set free from 
those um, expectations and the realization that he is for me and he's not against me. Like it was so life-giving and so freeing. And I long for his word now. I long to, you know, pray and have fellowship with him. These aren't things I have to do now, but it just has changed things so completely. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing your story with us of how God has given you the strength to walk away from brokenness and to find the life that Jesus offers. Wow. Today, let's talk about living by grace. To many people, grace is nothing more than something to be said with heads bowed before a meal around the dining room table. This idea of grace, as simple and as beautiful as it may be, is very different from the meaning presented in Scripture. So what exactly is grace? You may be surprised to know that Jesus never used the word itself. He just taught it and lived it. And scripture doesn't give us a one statement definition of grace, even though grace appears on every page of scripture, either by word or with many demonstrations of it. Understanding the definition of grace requires us to visit an old Hebrew term that meant to bend, to stoop, Eventually, the term came to include the idea of condescending favor. To show grace is to extend favor or kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it or cannot even ever earn it. Grace is always undeserved. Receiving God's grace always is in sharp contrast to earning it. Grace is always free, absolutely and totally free. You will never be asked to pay it back. We couldn't even if we tried. And so here's one of the stories of grace that comes from the Old Testament. If you'll turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9, there is the story of a brutal era when battles were happening. King Saul and his son Jonathan were in a battle, and they were killed one day. And when David heard that they had been killed, he grieved, even though he knew that this was actually the doorway for him to become the king. Now, the practice in those days was that whoever became the new king would kill off all the former king's family so there was no competition. Uh, the modern equivalent is when there's a change of government now, they fire everybody in the, in the office and they hire their all the new people. Well, they did it in a more permanent way back in the Old Testament time. And so when the news reached Jonathan's uh, nurse for Jonathan's son named Mephibosheth, he was a five-year-old son, when the nurse heard that King Saul and Jonathan had been killed, she knew regime, regime change was about to happen, and she knew that her life and the life of this son that she was in charge of was in jeopardy. She grabbed the five-year-old son, and she ran for her life, and in her panic, she fell, and it broke the legs of Mephibosheth, and he was lame in both his feet. She picked him up and continued to run and disappeared into the wilderness, for 15 to 20 years, we hear nothing about this. Well, it was about 20 years later. King David has led the, the nation to great prosperity, and he's thinking about the mercy of God and the grace of God to make this possible. And he thought, is there someone in the household of Jonathan? He remembered his friend Jonathan. Is there someone there that I could honor in some way? And he turns to a servant named Ziba. And notice that it says Ziba was a servant of Saul, he's from the former kingdom. David didn't kill him off. He left him in. He turns to Ziba and said, is there anyone? 
left. And he says, well, yeah, Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, but he's lame in both feet. And David said, well, where, where is he? And uh, Ziba says, he is uh, in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Now, the Hebrew Lodabar means uh, no word or wasteland. In fact, in the modern time, it even means don't know. So uh, Mephibosheth had been hiding out in the wilderness, someplace where he can keep his head down, not be noticed, because he was afraid if he popped his head up, it'd be lopped off. The word comes to him, come before the king. And he is petrified. He comes before David and says, what, what have I, who, who am I that, that you would even give regard to such a dead dog as me? He was picking the worst words he could think of to say, I'm completely undeserving. I'm just worse than a dog. And David just pours the grace on him. He says, everything that belonged to Saul and his whole household, I now give to you. And it says in the scripture that from that day on, he ate at the king's table. And it says, in fact, at numbers of times, like four times, it talks about eating at the table. And it uses the word always three times. And what is God trying to get through in this story? He's trying to tell us that when you exhibit mercy, like David did, who is reflecting God's character, it's given always. And it's to people who completely don't deserve it. Well, Dan... What a great story that is of, of grace in the Old Testament. That is a powerful story, Dan. You know, throughout this series of messages, I've shared a number of personal stories of my life, my parents, my siblings. To be perfectly candid with you, a part of me has been reluctant to share these stories. I'm not sure of the ethics of constantly sharing about my family. However, throughout the series, I have received, received a very steady flow of feedback encouraging me to stay the course every week. Mm -hmm. Sharing my stories is helping people have a context for the family issues they have. You see, one of my greatest fears is I would conclude my life being the kind of person where, you know, it's all about me, sort of like the narcissist type. I can think of no uglier way to conclude life or to live your life. However, the Lord has used this series to remind me that he is writing his story on the tablets of my heart, that everything happens for a purpose. In fact, we have a prophecy in Revelation 12 that the enemy will someday be defeated by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto the death. So it's in this spirit that I've offered my stories to you. Many of you watching this could testify of how God has been faithful to reveal himself and his love and purposes to you, yourself, through thick and thin. As I share this specific story of my dad, listen for the tension between grace and the opposite of grace, shame, and the stress we create in our lives when we want to pay for grace. About nine years ago, my dad started realizing he couldn't see as good as he used to. He went to his eye doctor to see if he could get stronger eyeglasses. His eye doctor referred him to a retina doctor. The retina doctor checked both his retinas, gave him the verdict. Sorry, we can't do anything about your left eye, but we can save your right eye. Come back here ASAP and we'll repair your right eye. Dad asked about the procedure and the doctor explained the procedure using the word needle, that there still, but there would be no pain involved, and the local 
anesthesia would take care of any discomfort. Dad left the doctor's office, making the choice to not return. Instead, he began sharing with those who knew him that he was going blind because the retina doctor said there's nothing he could do, and Jesus, in fact, wanted him to go blind. I likewise, around that time, had a retina issue in one of my eyes, and after some discussion with dad, he gave me the business card of his retina doctor. About a half a year later, I realized dad wasn't being totally truthful about his retina issue with me, so I pulled out that business card out of my wallet and placed a phone call to his retina doctor. When the receptionist answered the phone, I told her, hey, I don't know if you're permitted to tell me what's actually happening, happening with my dad's eyes, but I have reason to believe he may be confused about his sight situation. Would you mind looking in his file and explaining to me his situation? She said, please hold. And two minutes later, she picked up the phone saying, I'm so glad you called. Your dad was here on such and such a day and we told him he, he, we can't do anything about his left eye, but we can fix your right eye. I thanked her for this information and dialed dad's number. After a couple of minutes of small talk, I said, dad, you'll never guess what I discovered. You don't have to go blind. The medical world is constantly making changes and improving their work all the time. I just got off the phone with your retina doctor and they tell me if you'll come back to see them, maybe they can save your right eye and you'll never guess. Normally there's a $200 charge for another exam, but I found out they'll give you that exam for free. And dad, I asked about the pain level for repairing a retina and they assured me there is zero pain. Dad, what do you think? silence. So for the next 20 to 25 minutes, I tried different ways of explaining the life he could live if he chose to keep his sight. He responded only with silence. Finally, I said, Dad, why are you giving me the silent treatment? He immediately responded, I'm waiting for you to change the topic. I responded, Dad, great idea. Let's finish this topic first and we'll change the topic right after this. More silence, dead air. What's going on? He had already made up his mind to intentionally go blind. Deep in his heart, he didn't believe he deserved good health. He believed that by suffering blindness, maybe he could earn God's grace. Shortly after I helped him move to live by himself in total blindness for the next four years, he got a bad case of shingles. Would he be willing to see a doctor and be treated for shingles? No way. The pain of his shingles was his suffering for his sin. Deep in his heart, he believed that his suffering would earn him points with God. He believed he deserved to suffer. When the pain of his shingles became overwhelming, he finally agreed to have a medical doctor look at him in the men's washroom at church. The doctor told him he needed to do three things to get relief from his suffering, but dad made the choice to only follow through with one of the three things. Oh, here's the bottom line. Dad could not imagine grace. He was deeply committed to living by the rules. Don't talk, don't feel, don't trust anyone, don't think about the consequences, don't make any difficult choices, and never ever change. Grace made no sense to him. Why? 
I believe it's because early in his Christian journey, he was taught that we grow as Christians by working hard for Jesus. The teaching went, we are saved by grace, but we grow spiritually only through witnessing to others, working for the Lord, and sacrificing yourself and your family. Dear friends, my dad is not alone. We do the same thing. We make up all kinds of excuses for not accepting God's free grace. Um, and Jesus offers a grace response to every excuse that we can come up with. And Dan, I'd like to uh, give an excuse, and can you come up with a grace response? Okay, well, let's just role play this in here. Um, man, I deserve to be punished. Grace response is, by the stripes laid on me, you are healed. I'll take it for you. But, Dan, my debt is too much. I've paid the debt. You're absolutely free. There's no debt left. But you know the way I am. I can't help. I can't quit. Stop. I can't stop what I'm doing. Well, I've come to set the prisoners free to break the bonds. Dan, you know how old I am. I'm, I'm too old to, to change. You could be born again, start all over again. I, I don't think so. I just don't belong. I'll adopt you into my family as my son, my daughter. I just cannot see this, Dan. I'm really good at making blind people see. I'm, I don't think I can go there. I'm really good at making lame people walk. Get up and walk. Isn't that beautiful, Dan? That the gospel presents an answer to all these objections that we come up with. Why we couldn't do this? Why we can't do that? And grace is the answer. And grace is willing to adapt and modify to be able to bring the answer that fits the hurting soul. Well, you know, sometimes it's helpful to look at things by comparing them with the opposite. So grace and shame, grace and guilt are the opposite. And we can recognize the difference. And so we're going to talk about two kinds of cultures. There's the grace-based culture, which is a system of relating where the people in that system and non-members are given regular messages, as it were, that they are loved, they're accepted, they're valuable, and they're not alone to face life. And that in this system, relationship is all important. But the opposite of that would be a shame-based culture, where in this place, a system of relating where members are given regular messages that there's something wrong with you. And that acceptance into this group is only based upon performance. You have to earn your way into this group. And behavior that can be observed is all important. So let's look at this and compare them. Well, when it comes to shame-based culture, um, there's, first of all, there's out loud shaming. You know, there's these words would be spoken. Man, you just don't measure up. You do not belong. Why can't you just be like so-and-so? You, you are defective. In this system, it's performance-oriented. And you prove your worth, and thus you gain acceptance by certain behaviors. And then there's unspoken rules. Rules are only discovered when they're broken. There's a can't talk about that. 
rule in place. The person who says there's a problem is seen as the problem. So just keep your head down. And this pressures people to stay quiet. You end up communicating through coding. You talk about feelings or needs. If you talk about feelings or needs, it leaves you feeling ashamed for being so selfish to talk about those things. And there's uh, strong on head skills, weak on heart skills. People become strong at defending themselves and they're weak on being aware of their emotions because their emotions are wrong or selfish or unnecessary. And people don't know how they feel and they don't know how to manage their emotions. In this system, image is more important than integrity. How things look is more important than being real. Well, there's a whole different paradigm than that. That's grace-based. And in grace-based, there's out loud affirming. You assume that people cannot read your mind. You use their name regularly when speaking to them. And you say, hey, I love you. You are so capable. I'm here when you need me. I'm so glad you're in our family. I am so glad you are a boy, you are a girl. In this system, it's very people-oriented. Love and acceptance does not fluctuate regardless of behavior. And there's out loud rules and expectations. So rules are there to serve people, not people serving the rules. If adults and children are equally important, and they are, then neither adults or children are allowed to interrupt because they're, they're equally important. In this system, communication is clear and straight. You always tell the truth plainly, and when something isn't clear, you ask for clarity. And head skills are used for learning, and heart skills are used for feeling and choosing. And there's a uh, culture of solving problems and talking them through. And every member of the family is pre-approved to uh, weigh in on it. Their opinions are wanted. In this system, integrity is more important than image. What is real is more important than how things look. You know, Dan, I'd like to tell a story from my family. Years ago, when my father was called to be a missionary in India, I, as a young boy, went with him. And when you arrive in, in that mission field at that time, the expectation was that the husband and the wife would both work full-time in the mission, and you would hire people to do the other kinds of work, like the gardening. So my dad was, a, was to hire a gardener. He asked the servants that were in the mission there to look in the surrounding villages and find the poorest man. And they came back and said, there's a young man who lives in this nearby village who, uh, for whatever reason, has been kicked out of his home, and he's living off the garbage pile of the village. And my dad said, hire him. And this young man was illiterate, had no skills, no experience, nothing to offer. But dad said, I'm hiring you. And he actually began to train him. And for... All the years I was there, my dad had him as the gardener. And he explained, for example, how to save money. Out of each paycheck, he would save a little bit of money. And he actually saved enough money to buy a bicycle. And then to buy and build a house. 
and then to be able to afford the dowry for a wife. And he eventually became a father and a husband with a household. And three years ago, I went back to visit this man. And it was astounding. This is 40 years later. I meet this man and the love and the appreciation for my dad and my family was just heartwarming. What a beautiful example from modern time of grace being offered to someone who didn't earn it, had no credentials to deserve it. Wow, what a great story. What a great legacy your dad left uh, for your family and for, for India. What a, what a great story. It may come as a surprise to some that God is not into religion. Religion doesn't cut it with God. Human efforts to get God to approve of us will never work. No amount of self-effort will ever reform our hearts. The Apostle Paul planted the church at Philippi on a second journey and visited there again on his third journey. He felt very close to these people. His tone in Philippians chapters 1 and 2 of his letter to the Philippian church were very warm and friendly. But in chapter 3, his tone changes to cautions and warnings. The church was not safe from grace killers. There were people in the church who were adding works to grace. These works typically took the form of more rules. So the Apostle Paul offers a couple of word pictures in Philippians 3 to underscore the point that grace plus works equals a counterfeit. I encourage you to look at Philippians chapter 3. Paul's first word picture is that of a guard, a watchman. Beware of certain people, he writes. Be wary of false religion. Religious alternatives to authentic relationships with Jesus are a dime a dozen. They're all around us. Paul knows that counterfeit Christianity easily becomes toxic. The Old Testament prophets and Jesus and Paul certainly believe that living by rules easily becomes malignant. Trying to keep a set of rules in order to placate God, that's religion, not relationship. Embracing God's grace for salvation and rejecting God's grace for our growth is a travesty. To prove his point, Paul shares with us his resume. Read with me Philippians 3, verse 4. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm a full-fledged Jew from the cradle. I know my family tree. My great-grandpa Benjamin was the only son of Jacob born in the promised land. I have pure Jewish blood from both my parents. As to the law, I have the distinction of being a separatist Pharisee. My zeal is legendary. There's not the slightest chink in my armor, having paid meticulous attention to tons of rules that all began with the word don't. <laughs> That's good. And then Paul, in his writing, shifts the metaphor to that of an accountant, and he uses the word count three times. And he takes from this list of all his assets, and he cuts and he pastes them into the column that he's called liabilities. And then in the asset column, he writes one thing, and this is in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, 
I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from keeping all the rules, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul was not lamenting his loss. He was actually relieved, relieved to know he didn't have to keep working on these things and proving his worth. Then he shifts to the very next metaphor and that of a marathon runner. And he admits he hasn't arrived yet and that there is a goal he's striving for, but he is determined he's going to go for gold because of this relationship with Jesus Christ that he was aiming for. And it's called to come to go upward in this calling with Christ. And he says, brothers, I don't consider I've made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, there's no rear view mirror in this kind of grace. There's no letting your past determine your future. There's no wanting to live for the good old days. It's all about going forward with Christ. Is there a struggle in doing this? Well, yes. Anything of value includes a struggle. Winning a race means you got to go for it. And Paul says, I'm going for it. And he's reminded, uh, we are reminded, that the struggle to become a butterfly is literally what gives its wings color. If you open the cocoon prematurely, the wings will be colorless and the butterfly will have no strength to live. So Paul runs his race and encourages the Philippians to do likewise. Wow. <clears throat> I love that butterfly. Don't like the caterpillar. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> when the Apostle Paul wrote about freedom in Christ, the next criticism he bumped into was, you are into license. If people get serious about living by grace, they're just going to go straight into sinning. Paul says, no, that's not how it works. This brings up the issue of grace and fences. The first fence in scripture shows up in Genesis 3. God had simply commanded, don't eat of the tree. Eve built the first fence about God's commands when she added the words, or touch it. Perhaps she thought mistakenly that the best way to avoid forbidden fruit was to build a protective barrier around God's commands. Apparently, she felt that obedience would be aided by being stricter than God. So fencing is done by simply adding to God's law. By her fence building, Eve bypassed the heart protection that God had offered through an open relationship with him. We do the same today. Fences have a way of replacing a heart relationship with God. Fences can become so much a part of the church scenery that we hardly can see them. The unchurched typically see them right away. The biggest fence in Paul's day was circumcision. The biggest fence in Jesus' day had to do with the Sabbath. Observing the Sabbath was the very heart of Pharisee teaching. The laws that grew up around the Sabbath would have required a big book to list them all. The Gospels record seven clashes with Jesus regarding the Sabbath. 
The Pharisees could not imagine how a holy man wouldn't fully comply with their holy fences. Conflict over the Sabbath marked one of the primary turning points in Jesus' ministry. Prior to Matthew 12, Jesus was an irritating novelty. After Matthew 12, he became the object of intense scrutiny and eventually homicide. So conflict over the Sabbath began one Saturday as Jesus and his disciples were going for a stroll. Jesus was discussing rest, an appropriate Sabbath subject with his band of friends. They became hungry and started to glean some grain from the fields through which they were walking. This was a normal activity for poor people, but not on the Sabbath. Well-established Jewish fences prohibited this. The Pharisees noticed and said something. The big discussion items for them were, what does remember really mean? When does the Sabbath start and stop? How does one make a day holy? And trickiest of all, what actually constitutes work? The two main schools of Pharisees disagreed on many fine points. The primary rabbis had a list of 39 fences, 39 rules that were out of bounds Sabbath activities. Jesus and the disciples were breaking four of these that day. Well, uh, the question comes up in the mind, well, aren't there a, isn't there a place for some rules? Well, yes, there is. Now, when fences are good, they protect and instruct the innocent and the immature. They can have a positive emotional function. Knowing where we stand gives us security and satisfaction. But sometimes they can give us respect for the law. For example, the law of a land keeps us from evil and promotes social order. And fences can help shape positive habits that reinforce godly lifestyles. Although they can become rote legalism pretty easily. Now, fences are not good when they're inconsistent with God's word. Jesus warned against building a case and then calling it scriptural. They may ignore special ministries and exceptions. For example, taste of music. Is that really a good fence to say or not? Uh, bad fences ignore God's priorities. People are God's priorities. They forget who's in control. Jesus declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And fences are not good when, when they're not logical or consistently applied. For example, Jesus healing on the Sabbath or getting into details like hairstyle or dress code. And there's an opposite outcome, bondage. The Sabbath was designed by God to promote ministry and not restrict it. Wow. That's a good comparison, Dan. I think there's a core principle here. When fences become our focus, they will more likely lead to rules-based Christianity or legalism than to lordship. When fences work, they can make the Holy Spirit unnecessary. None of us can live without fences, but we must resist the temptation to pressure others to buy into every one of our fences. So what's the solution? I need to pursue a solid relationship with Jesus and not seek a righteousness of my own that comes from rules, Philippians 3, 9. 
God himself wants to be the focus of our lives, not fences. Only then will we find freedom. We'd like to conclude with a story from Jesus that speaks to this whole issue. This is a very famous story that Jesus gave. It's a story about two brothers. They both had everything they needed in a beautiful home, but the younger brother decided he wanted to kind of do his own thing. And so he demanded to have his share of the inheritance and he left and went to a far country. And sure enough, he was unwise, made some friends who were really good at talking to him and getting money out of him. And when he ran out of money and couldn't buy them rich gifts anymore, well, his friends abandoned him. And he was in such a bad state that he actually had to go find a job. And the only job he could find was taking care of pigs. Now in the Jewish world, that has got to be the worst thing possible. He is in the midst of a pigsty. He's so hungry, he's eating pig food. And in the midst of that painful spot, he begins to think, man, it was a lot better back in my father's house. I think I'll go back. But you know, I really don't deserve to be a son. I deserve to be punished for this. I deserve to be disowned. But I'm going to go back and see if I might just become a servant in the father's house. And as he's coming back, the father sees him. And the father runs for him to greet him. The son tries to... Uh, put on the shame of having all the terrible things he's done and the father will have none of it. He says, no, I want to put on a robe on you. I want to put a ring on your finger and special shoes on your feet. And we are going to have a party. He would not allow the son to go into this groveling, uh, shame-based kind of living. He says, no, you're my son. And come on, let's party. When they go in, the older brother, who has been very careful about keeping the rules and being very straight and being very responsible, says, what's all this about? Here, I've been slaving my whole life for you. I've never had a party. And you, for this son, you, you put on a party. And the, the father says, you need to understand, he's still my son. He's never stopped being my son. Come, join the party. And you know, this is God's invitation to us as well. We who may have strayed like the younger son, thinking we deserve to pay for it now and be disowned, the father will have none of it. He comes running. And this is the only time in scripture where the father is told to be running. And he's running to bring the wayward son or wayward daughter back to him with no punishment. It's a party. And the other one, the older brother, is a warning that sometimes those who are very careful at keeping all the rules and doing everything right can get a little bit put out by this incredible grace, this freedom, this, this being forgiven and just welcomed in and no penalty or anything. It's really amazing grace. What a story Jesus gave, which illustrates our Heavenly Father and his attitude toward us. Well, that is a great story, Dan. Thanks for sharing it. Thanks for um, everything you've shared here. If there was ever a true just-as-I-am church, if ever there was a community where everybody could bring all their baggage and brokenness with them without neat and tidy happy endings, if ever there was a group where everyone was loved and accepted with no conditions and no one felt they needed to pretend, we would not be able to make enough room inside the church building. Please pray with me. 
Father God, we thank you for your grace. Grace is free, but it sure wasn't cheap. You gave your life for us. And then you rose from the dead, proving that you even had the power over death. And Lord, just as we are, we come to you with our brokenness and ask for you to transform us from the inside out. Lord, give us the strength to break the rules that have us in chains. Help us, Lord, to become people who are talking and feeling and trusting and thinking and choosing and changing. We thank you for the promise that you can change us and you run to us as we come to you. Lord, we come to you today and we thank you for all that you're going to do for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.